0: well a man named Aaron Ralston perhaps you've heard that name before hiker from Utah a number of years ago Aaron single guy decided he was going to go on a hike he was a canyoneer um, which meant he goes down sheer canyons in Utah think about the different places you've been in Utah with canyons where there's two sides of the canyon that come down and he would rappel down those and it was a normal trip for him he was about 50 miles from nowhere and he took his car to a place, spent the night, got on his bike and he traveled about five more miles to this canyon that he was checking out that he was gonna do this trip on. And so he comes to the canyon and he rappels down and his foot um, catches a boulder, a really big boulder he thought was stable and the boulder began to move as he went down it and the boulder didn't collapse on him but collapsed on his arm, an 800 pound boulder on his hand. And really at that point he had in his mind three options. His first option was to try to chisel with his little Leatherman some of the rock off of this 800 pound boulder to try to get his wrist and his hand unhinged so he could get out. And his second thought was, is 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 maybe I can move this boulder when that didn't work. And somehow, he didn't know how big the boulder was, per se. It was big, and so he created this crazy pulley system to try to move the boulder with one hand, and that didn't work, and he was left with one option. And he looked at his hand, and he thought, the only way that I have any chance of surviving is to cut off my arm. Perhaps you know Aaron's story now. Movie 127 Hours. He wrote a book between a rock and a hard spot, a hard place. The man cut, amputated his arm off after six days. And then he rappelled down 60 more meters, walked six miles until he came into contact with a family, which was a mile from his bike, and got him to safety. It's amazing, it's unbelievable what people will do to merely live, isn't it? You know the survival instinct, perhaps that's come to you. When I was five years old, uh, my parents took me to swim lessons. See, when you, when you grow up in a small town and it's like the 80s, there's not like Mommy and Me Swim Club to teach your kids how to swim when they're really little. Um, so once a year in the summer at the local pool, uh, there was swim lessons. So I'm five and I don't know how to swim, and my family really enjoys going to the lake. So my dad especially is like, we got to get this kid some lessons so he can swim. And so at age five, I go, I get an earache. So I make it like a day before I have an earache. So the next summer, this is how it rolled. Uh, the next summer, I go back to swim lessons, and the same thing happens. And, and, and my parents are like, okay, so he's like almost seven, and we go to the lake on the weekends a lot. And we go to Inks Lake, grew up in the hill country, and there's this great cove. And so my dad tried to teach me how to swim. But when water was above my head, I I still freaked out. I had this mental block. Like I could paddle and I could come up out of the water, but I had this mental block. And so one day we're in the middle of the lake and my mom's on board, which was a mistake by my dad. My mom's on board and I'm about, I can slalom, but I can't swim, you know. And so I'm eight years old and my dad just grabs me in the middle of Inks Lake over by the bridge, if you've ever been over there, and he just throws me in the lake, y'all. I don't. I, I haven't gone to counseling for this, yeah. But like, he throws me in the lake, and survival instinct shows up, and I figure out how to swim. Didn't need a swim lesson after that. I was good, and my mom was yelling at him. But survival instinct—things that you don't think you can do that you can pull off—we all have it to some degree or another. We all want to survive. And yet the real question, I think, is in life is not do we want to survive. It's what are we living for? Have you ever thought about that question? What am I really living for? And what am I really, what's really worth dying for? And is there anything in life that's both worth living and dying for? The Apostle Paul gives us the answer to those questions today in the book of Philippians. He's chained in prison in a Roman cell, but he's going to give us the answer today to a life worth living and a death worth dying. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And we'll be in verses 20 through 30, page 980 on the Bible on the end of your row. You might need it this morning. The words will be up here, but open your, open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. And we know in the book of Philippians so far, we've seen Paul's encouragement to this Philippian church who's been faithful. There's this little church that started with the gospel spreading to um, an Asian wealthy lady And God opened her heart to believe a little slave girl from Philippi and a Roman soldier. Think about the power of the gospel in that. And he encourages them by remembering that. And um, it's probably the only epistle that we see where there's really not a correction. He's thanking them for the financial gifts that that they gave him and brought to him. And he writes a letter back of encouragement to them. And yet he shares some things about his situation. See, Paul was between a rock and a hard spot. He was between the rock and the hard spot of not knowing what was coming next. He was waiting to see what Caesar would say. And the courts would say, is he going to live or is he going to die? You ever been in a place where you had to go to the doctor? And the doctor was going to run some tests. And those tests were serious. But you had to wait a week or two to get to the results of that. Do I have cancer? Do I have this thing or that thing? And what do you do in that circumstance? You start... Playing that out, don't you? You start playing out, okay, if I don't have cancer, my life might look like this. If I do, it's going to look like this. And this is what's happening in Paul's head. There's an emotional dilemma that he has in this text where he's contemplating outcomes. What, depending on what happens, here's how I'm thinking. And he shares those thoughts as an encouragement to the Philippians today. So he's going to be real open and honest. He's awaiting this. And so, really, this text is going to answer the question, what's a life worth living and a death worth dying from a guy who was there? And we know the answer to a life worth living, I think, most of us, and a death worth dying where there is gain. I think we know the answer to that, but what in the world does that look like? And that's what Paul's going to unpack as an encouragement to the Philippians this morning. So let me read verses 20 to 23. Let me start, actually, in verse 19. Verse 19 through 30. Follow along with me there. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, Philippians, and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, that will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager, verse 20, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now and always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And here's your life verse. for. For to me, to live and to die is gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, it means fruitful labor for me. Yet which which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh, in my body, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Verse 27 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of, your, of their destruction. But of you, your salvation. And that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have as well. Let's look at the first couple of verses there. Verse 21 is the coffee cup verse, at least the first part, right? And the last part is kind of the tombstone part of the verse. To live is Christ and to die his gain. He's built up to this place in verse 21. Look at it in verse 19 and 20. So whether he lives or dies in his situation, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love Paul's perspective. He's like, hey, they can... They can put me in prison, I'm still going to advance the gospel. They can make me suffer and the gospel is still going to advance. I can die and you know what? My testimony will live on and I'll be with Jesus. That's his perspective in verse 21. To live is Christ and to die is game. And the way he would do that, the way he would walk through that, verse 19, is from the help of the prayers of the saints. And so he's saying it's important for you. It's important for you, church, to continue to pray for me where I'm at. I need your prayers to, to remain strong to have this perspective no matter what happens to me I need the spirit of God in verse 19 okay to live for Christ in that way I need the work of the Spirit in my life and I need to rely on the promise that no matter if I live or whether I die that it's still gained because I know Christ this is his perspective so your first point is this we live for Jesus we live for Jesus that Christ in verse 20 It says that Christ will be honored or literally magnified. We just sang about it, magnifying Christ in our life. When I think about honing in on stuff, when I think about magnification, I think about, you remember the example of Peter where Jesus is out on the water and you know Peter, he's bold, so he comes out on the water with him. And what happens when he's looking at Jesus, when he's honed in and magnified his lens, the way he's looking on Jesus, he stays on the water And then when he looks away to the winds and the waves, he begins to sink. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we magnify. it. And an example of that, as as I think about life, um, I play golf. And on the course that I play, number two, it's a long par four. um, And when I bring people to play with me, I always watch them on number two. I watch them on number two because if you're going down to fairway and you get closer to the green, you see all this water on your left you see this water, and you see this green that's elevated, and there's a bunker over here on one side. And, then, and, and so you, you get on number two. Even one guy I played with, I'm like, hey, that's number three. Just play number two. Let's, let's just focus right here. You get on number three T and you look at this green. And you look at the situation, and, and, and functionally, this green is elevated. It's got railroad ties all around the front of it. If you're not a golfer, I'm sorry. I'll get to a different, better illustration later. It comes around the front. So if you miss in the front, you're in the water. It comes around the side. You miss way right, you're in the water. You miss a little bit right, there's about a 10-foot swell that comes down. You have an impossible flop shot to try to hit it onto the green and keep it on the green. You're dead right. You're dead in the front. If you go left, there's water. Your only miss is a bunker, and for most golfers, they never want to be in the bunker. And so I have this thing. If you're a hunter, you know Bushnell, right? So you've got um, these binoculars, but they make binoculars for golfers, too. And they're really expensive. Um... I got mine for free. I got mine for free. Um, and so what you do is you, you get your number. So you, you can tell how far you are from the green. You know what I do on that hole? Especially on that hole? Aim small, miss small, man. So I'm aiming at the middle of that green. I'm magnifying that lens to where I get the number. Not even to the pin, but to the middle of the green from where, I, where the tee box is. Because I'm ho- I have to be honed in on where I want to hit it. Not all the trouble that's all around that green. And life is a lot like that, isn't it? There's all kinds of distractions. There's all kinds of trouble all around. And for the Christian, and you think about Paul here, you think about your own life. For the Christian, we have to magnify, hone in on Christ because there's plenty of things in life that will push our attention elsewhere. And some of those things are good things. When good things become bad things is when they become ruling things. That's what we said last week. But also there's the distractions of life that we have that are hurts that we have with people or situations. And when we hone in on that and we let those things snowball in our life. And we come home from work day after day frustrated and frustrated and frustrated. You're just honing in on the trouble. What you need to do is hone in on Christ to magnify him in your life. So that's what we see. So what are you magnifying, C3? What are we magnifying each day? We come home, magnify Christ. One of the easiest ways I think Satan um, pursues these things in our lives is probably different than the first century. I think clearly in the first century, as we teach through epistles, what you see is persecution. You see suffering and it's right in front of them. And we live in a very insulated place. We live in Montgomery County. And I know things are crazy in our world, but we're pretty far. When you read the New Testament, I I feel kind of distant from their reality. And I think one of the tools that Satan uses, he used that tool then of suffering and persecution. And sure, there's some of that here, but I think one of the greatest tools Satan uses in our life is not persecution, but it's distraction. I mean, we live in relative comfort and ease, and so it's often the good things that distract us from the best things, even good gifts that God gives us. So, distraction. Listen, this is Paul's thesis to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know what, but, but here 's here's the next question I've, This is kind of a generic statement that i 've given you. Hey, just live for Christ, magnify Christ, but what in the world does that look like you, pastor you 've got to help me a little more. understand what what that looks like in my life. This is you know a paintbrush of something, but give me more details, and that 's what paul 's about to do he 's going to give us more details as what does it look like to magnify Christ? What does it look like to live for Christ? And this is what he does next. So your next point is this. We not only live for Jesus. Here's what it looks like. We labor for Jesus. We labor for Jesus. Look at it in verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means just the body. I'm going to live on or am I going to die. That means, what's the next phrase? Fruitful labor. It means fruitful labor for me. And so to live for Christ means that we labor and we look for God to work fruit in us and work fruit in others. Look at, though, the purpose for Paul. It wasn't for himself. Do you see that? In verse, skip to 24. We'll come back to 23. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for me? No. What does it say? For your account. It's more necessary for me to stay on your account. So he's thinking of others and he's thinking about the benefit that he could be to others if God has him stay. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue on for the faith for the progress and joy of the faith. He's, he wants to continue for others, to serve others. That's his perspective here in laboring for other people. There's, there is a note that I have to make in this text, so you, you might read it and go, hey, he's convinced and he says he knows that he's going to stay around. And you're going, hey, didn't it not work out so well for Paul after this? So, so what does he mean? There's, only, there's really a couple of answers. The first one is this the word no here, I know I'm going to be here, is not definitive. It's not a definitive. And as a matter of fact, you scroll down a couple of verses, what does he say next in 27? Whether I come and see you or I'm absent. Absent meaning I didn't get to come to see you, but I'm still alive or I didn't make it. Okay, so this word no is not definitive. There's also some evidence and scholars disagree about this. This is house arrest for Paul in Rome. A little background here. House arrest, Many people think he went back to Philippi, and he also went back to Ephesus, and so he got released here, and then he got put back in prison and put in the dungeon. It seems in First Timothy, that's what we see. And so it may be that he actually did get to get out and see them again, or if he didn't, the word no is not definitive. This is what he was convinced of, either because he looked at his case and said, hey, there's a pretty... And talked to his lawyer and said, hey, there's a pretty good chance I get out of this deal, or... Because he felt that way, but it's interesting because often God does things that we we look at on paper and go, man, it looks like it should be this way, and God does something else. So we labor for Christ. Here's the deal. There's work to be done. There's work to be done. and Until he comes, which is the ultimate prize, until Jesus comes back, or we die to go be with him, there is work, C3, to be done. There's a lot of things that we can not do in heaven. You ever think about that? Think about all the things that you can't do in heaven. You can't wipe a tear from someone who's hurting. You can't feed the poor in heaven. You can't be a voice for those who are weary and weak. You can't put your arm around somebody in your church who's going through a really hard time in their life in heaven. You can't disciple People in heaven can 't encourage the body in heaven you can 't share the gospel in heaven, so this is what Paul knows. this is a good word for us to labor the work 's not done this is what he 's saying to the Philippians. labor for Jesus we know that you know we, we understand that that time you know, time doesn 't stand still there 's a window that we have we, we know this in other ways in our life too as well don 't we We know this when you know, your oldest is four years from getting out of the house. And you go, man, I got four years, right? You know this when you have an aging parent who's in their 70s and you're going, I only have so much time. What Paul's saying here is that the time is short, so we need to labor. You only have a certain window because eternity is forever. You've got a glimpse, just a piece. So labor, work. You know, I don't know about you, but this last year is in, in different ways and different ways that the, the guys call it the COVID. No, <laughs> like I could do this, but it's kind of the COVID deal like we're not going to do that. It's easy to say no. It's easier to say no. But when you look at life in the kingdom of God and go, man, I've got this much time. I'm going to labor with my church That's what he's saying to the Philippians. I'm going to labor for the kingdom. What a great opportunity I have in in places where people are wondering about things like life and death to be able to live for Christ and do that together. So we labor for Christ. It also looks like, verse 27 and 28, turn your attention there. It looks like a church's testimony of integrity toward the world and in the world. Look at it there, verse 27 and 28. I'm going to unpack a couple of, I'm going to give some color to these verses. Uh, there's black and white a little bit. The meaning is true and right in this translation, Um, but I studied a lot this week, so I want to give you some of the color because I think it's really neat that that helps color verse 27 and 8 in in, in maybe a a new or even bigger way than the translation we have does. It says only, so that's singular, let your manner of life, your manner of life, uh, you don't see this in the ESV, the way it translates it, but if you have a CSB, um, it translates the Greek a little bit better there. It's, it literally says, as citizens of heaven. And you look at that and go, that seems kind of different. Uh, manner of life, the way you live, you get the word citizen out of that, and we are citizens of heaven, as Paul will say in just a minute. As citizens of heaven. And here's the thing the, in, if you lived in Philippi in that day and you lived there, you had Roman citizenship. That was a big deal. You know how Paul uses his Roman citizenship to get out of some stuff? It was a big deal. It was an honor to be a Roman citizen because it gave you rights and privileges. And so in Philippi, these are people that have come to Philippi. Think about the three different people from different places. And they have Roman citizenship, and that's a big deal. They're proud Philippians. All right, They're proud of being citizens of this earthly place that gives them privilege. And they would grant citizenship to other people who would come in. Maybe you think Texan. I think Texan. I've got a big Texas flag in my office, in my church office. I don't think that's sacrilegious. But I love Texas. I, this is where I grew up. And for people outside of Texas, they can tell you, like, y'all are weird. Like, y'all, y'all really get into this thing. You're a proud American. You're proud of the heritage of being an American. And that ought to rightly Make you proud in those ways. But what Paul is, he's, he's flipping. He's giving you a word picture. saying, I know you're a proud citizen of Philippi, but your, your primary allegiance, Christian and Philippians in, the, in Philippi, listen, your primary allegiance is not this city. It is not the Roman Empire. It is heaven. You are a citizen of heaven, and that changes the way you think. Be a proud citizen of your city, but your life direction should be shaped by this being a citizen of heaven not a citizen of Philippi. So he says, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. The word standing firm there is a military word. You see Paul use these all over the New Testament. It's this idea that a military, not one soldier, but a group of soldiers, a battalion of soldiers are standing together. When I think of that, I think of King Leonidas And the Spartan army going out to meet this massive Persian army and block the way to Sparta. 300 soldiers who did this. That's what he's saying. Stand together as believers, as citizens of heaven, as Christians. We ought to stand together. There's an implication of unity in standing together as Christians here. And then you see the next phrase. With one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, he uses, so he uses a military term and then he uses an athletic term. You see him do that in a number of places, Second Timothy chapter 2, he uses uh, the soldier, he uses the athlete, he uses the farmer, and he does it at least two of those here. He uses the athlete, but would you think as an athlete, if you played on a, like a golf team, you're, a, you're an individual kind of sport guy, he's not thinking of that, he's thinking about side by side, he's thinking about like a football team. Where we work together as the body of Christ in unity. And I can't help but think, um, there's a movie called "Remember the Titans," an old movie. You have segregated country. And, and when segregation was happening, they were putting when, when the end of segregation happened, they put schools together, the black school and the white school, and they brought them together, and they brought things like football teams together. And that was trouble. When you take two segregated schools, white and black, and bring them together. And this movie, movie chronicles a true story. They took some liberty in the movie, but it chronicles a true story of a high school football team in Virginia. And they have all kinds of mess going on when they put those two teams together. And Denzel Washington is a black coach, and I can't remember the, the white coach's name, and they're trying to figure this out. And they go to training camp, and they're having all kinds of trouble with these black kids and white kids coming together on a team To play a team sport. And he gets them up at 3 a.m. one morning. And they run. And they run in Virginia. To this field. And this field. Has gravestones all over it. In the dew of the morning. And he says to these young men. Do you know where we are? This is Gettysburg. 50,000 soldiers died right here. Not much older than you because of hatred. Unless we come together, we're going to end up hating. See, the body of Christ comes together. There's a lot of differences that we have, even in this room, in the body of Christ, the way we think about a lot of different things. But how do they come together? They come together for the gospel. That's what he says. Standing firm just to stand firm? No. In the spirit, striving side by side? Just to do it? No, for the faith, for the gospel, that we're together for the gospel, even with differences about what we think about mask, what we think about politics or how we deal with different things in this world. The gospel's bigger than that. So coming together. So we are lights for Jesus together. Can I tell you that that kind of unity and integrity that brings a church together, that we're lights together, that we're the city set on a hill? for a looking world that's an apologetic to see the church together and by the way you might say well you know we have a lot of differences I promise you this church had more differences across racial and ethnic and socio-economic lines than we do so we are lights for Jesus integrity and courage that's our best review To a world that's looking at us. Wondering are they together? Are they separate? Inside churches. Outside of churches. The book of Titus tells us this. That it's our job to adorn the gospel. Of Christ. To an unbelieving world. To adorn it. I mean the, the, the cross is an offense. But if we can't be united together. I mean you think about this. as When you go to a new city or a new place. Or maybe down the road. I know when I got here. And we're going, okay, where are we going to go eat? So what do we do? We got on Yelp, right? We got on Yelp and we said, okay, what are the good places to eat? We asked people, what are the good places to eat? And if there were a lot of bad reviews, we, we wouldn't go there. And so as it relates to the world that we live in, you know, a bad review turns off prospective buyers in this world. Just like you going out to eat or me going out to eat. So what's our testimony? What's our testimony? I can imagine back in that day, you know, Paul saying, man, it's really, it's really neat if he lived in this day, back to that day. It's really neat because when they post on social media or they tweet, man, it's all about the gospel and, and ways where the church can be united. I wonder what that looks like in our lives. To see the gospel is more important. The more important than the things that surely can divide us. I wonder what the review on my life looks like. For somebody who doesn't know Jesus, my neighbor, who's looking at me, I wonder what the review on our church is, what are our customer reviews? So we want to be lights, we want to be luminaries for the world around us. What does it look like to live for Jesus? It means to labor for him, to be lights for him. There's one more, or two more. Hang with me, we'll get there. No football on this week. <laughs> next week, I'll keep it short next week. We last for Jesus. Jesus. Look at verse twenty-nine and thirty. We last for Jesus. Yes, iteration is happening today. Alliteration is happening today. It's not normal for me, but it worked in this text. So, verse twenty-nine and thirty. For it's been granted to you that, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him but suffer for Him. So, listen. It's granted. This is the idea. So, this is the idea that you get um, for grace. It's been graced to you. If you want to be literal about it, it's been graced. Look at it. It's been graced to you. That's a stronger message, not only to believe in the gospel, because that's what happened, right? That God opened your heart and you responded with gifts of faith and repentance. And you came to faith because he drew you to himself, not because you're so smart and so great, but because he loves you and drew you to himself. So it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, right? We understand that. We celebrate that. I'll celebrate that. We celebrate that when we sing. So we're excited about being granted salvation by his grace. Are we? But look at the next part. This is harder, right? You should not only believe in him. It's grace to you that you should not only believe for him, but also suffer for him. Are you telling me that Paul's saying that suffering is a grace? That's what he's saying. How's that? Sell me on that. How is my suffering a grace? Well, you can look at his life, and he's, he's gone through it, and he's saying it. But before we get there, I, I feel like in this text, there was something that I look at. And I think about the grace. There's, there's really two things, grace, and one being suffering. Man, he wasn't changed. He was canceled. You think about your life and the, and the suffering and the hardship that you have... How do you see that as a grace? Here's, here's the idea. Man, we, we tend not to learn dependence upon God unless we have junk that happens in our life. That's true in my life. Unless hard things happen, it, it's often true in my own life that I'm less dependent upon the Lord so he uses it. We tend to grow best when we have to go through something according to James. And God can even use our suffering for his glory and our good, even though we would never pick it. I wouldn't ever pick some of the things that God's put on my plate, would you? But he uses it. He ordains it and uses it. There's a guy named, a pastor named Levi Lesko. Have you ever heard that name? A uh, pretty well-known preacher. A little different persuasion, but a preacher of the gospel. And about six years ago, his eight-year-old daughter, who has asthma, died. Asthma attack, and she died. And he was there. What did you think about processing the death of an eight-year-old? Right, you, that you love. Going through the process of that, and his wife found a picture of their little girl a few months later. And it was a picture of her, you could see in the back seat sticking her out out the window, taken from the back seat. And so you could also see the mirror just outside the driver's seat that says, that says "Objects and mirror are closer." than they appear. And Levi Lesko goes on to talk about how she doesn't feel near. She doesn't feel near at all. And how hard it's been. And he's talking to his congregation about this. But she is. She's in heaven with Jesus. And he wrote this book called Lion to help people deal with grief the way he's had to deal with grief. And he says this. It's an honor To be entrusted with pain. It's an honor to be entrusted with pain. That God might use in my life. See, Paul is trying to communicate. The same kind of thing to his audience. You're going to go through some mess. Like I've gone through some mess. But even in it, Christ can be magnified. Whether you live or whether you die. See, he's with you. You're not alone. He chisels away at what's undone in our lives. So to live is Christ. We need to last for Christ, we need to be lights for Christ, we need to labor for him. But what about this whole verse 21, dying is gain thing? To live is Christ sounds really good, but to die is gain. Let's walk through that. The last point here from verse 21 and 23 is we long for Christ. We long for Jesus. It's it's good and well living for Christ today to long for Jesus. There's things that we can't do in heaven but is right and good to say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm ready for that. Do you see it there in verse 23? In verse 23, this is what he says. I am hard pressed between the two. For my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Listen, he didn't have a choice. It wasn't his choice. He wasn't making the choice to depart. That was to the courts and providentially with God. So he's not contemplating, hey, I'm going to choose myself to die and take my own life. He's not saying that. He's saying, with these different obstacles, here's what's good about it if I don't make it. I'm hard-pressed between the two, ribeye or filet. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better see heaven isn't a consolation prize you know often we treat heaven like a consolation prize because really the the main prize is living now because that's the only thing we know it's the only thing we know but heaven is not a consolation prize it's the grand prize and he's saying ultimately it's better it's better it's not the silver mineral it's the ultimate prize and I think we know this in our heads that it, it, it's, it's the best prize, but we often treat it like the consolation prize, don't we? And this idea of departing is a really neat phrase. I got—I got to unpack it a little bit for you. The, you, the use of this word, depart—it's when a slave releases, or a slave is released from its from their master, or a prisoner is set free from prison. Or a tent is taken down, like breaking camp when you go camping. Or last, it's like a ship leaving the harbor. Leaving the harbor. The moorings come off and the ship leaves. And I went on this cruise a couple of years ago. I really, I, I really enjoyed it. Left out of Galveston, Ever been on a cruise. Some people love it. Some people don't like it at all. Went on this cruise and in the late afternoon kicked off. Soon after, went to bed, woke up in the morning, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful seas, hung out at Cozumel, pretty cool place, enjoyed the cruise, and oftentimes what we do is, is, is we treat death like it's just the coffin as well, don't we? We treat it like it's just the coffin, but what, what it really is, it's, it's like getting, if you know Jesus, it's like getting on the boat. And going to the celestial city. And there's no more tears. There's no more sin. And this is what Paul longs for. And remember, Paul has a unique perspective, right? He has a perspective that you and I don't have. Remember back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, what happened to him? He got caught up. God took him and let him see heaven effectively. So he's he's going through hardship. He's going through torture. He's going through all this stuff. And he knows, he's tasted a little bit what heaven's like. And his report... Back, is it's really good. I didn't know if I was in my body or not, so it's physical. I can't even tell you all the things about it. It's so grand. And so he's saying it's better. It's better, ultimately, to be there. C.S. Lewis said that death is the most democratic thing on the planet. We all die. We can't escape it, even if we try to avoid it. So until then, Until that day when God calls us home by His choosing, not ours. Until that day we labor for Him. We're lights for Him. We last for Him. And we long for that day as Christians. That is good and right. So let me ask you a question. As we close here, let me ask you this question. How do you fill in the sentence and the blank in verse 21? For to me, to live is blank and to die is blank. How do you fill that question in, that sentence in? You know, I put cheap substitutes into the first part all the time, functionally. To live, think about it. Why don't you think about this? Let's say I put, to live is money. What does to die mean? To be broke, right? To live is pleasure, or power, or comfort, or even family. If I put that in, to live is... Any of those things, those temporal things, to die is what? It's the loss of those things. The only blank that works to where death is gain is Christ. If to live is Christ, then the only thing that you can put in there, dying is gain, because he's there. He's resurrected from the dead, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he says that if you believe in him, that you won't perish but have everlasting life. The only thing you can put in that blank is Christ to make death have any meaning. One guy said it this way: Death brings you either brings you to your treasure or it takes you from your treasure. Which is it? It's a question for us. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, this is really could be great news. Could be great news for you to consider. That Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So as believers in Christ, to live is Christ. We labor for him, we last for him, we're lights for him. And to die means, as a believer in Christ, think about how awesome this is, even to die is gain. It's a win-win situation. You can double down on that life bet. Your takeaway today is this. If you know, knowing Christ makes life worth living and death worth dying. Let me pray. And as I pray, um, I want to pray this prayer from a 5th century evangelist to Ireland. A man who was born in England, who was sold as a slave to Ireland. When he was 16, he went back to England and then he came to Christ and he went back to Ireland to be a missionary. You might know him as St. Patrick. St. Patrick said this. This will be our closing prayer before communion. Father, as I rise today, may the strength of God pilot us. The power of God uphold us. The wisdom of God guide us. May the eye of God look before us. The ear of God hear us. The word of God speak for us. May the hand of God protect us. The way of God lie before us. The shield of God defend us. The host of God save us. I pray this over you. May Christ shield us today. Christ with us. Christ before us. Christ behind us. Christ in us. Christ beneath us. Christ above us. Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of us, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of us, Christ in every eye that sees us, Christ in every ear that hears us. In Jesus' name, amen.